This is episode 78 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. Today we are back with Jessica Lasky for part two of my conversation with her. And what I love about doing these episodes is, you know, like I usually ask the guests to submit like an outline or, you know, some people like are really strict with like wanting to keep a script and other people I'm like, please just hop on and let's just start talking because I know it'll be great. And that's how it was with Jessica. I knew it would just be a great conversation. We kind of picked out like 10 different topics to talk about. Um, and I love where our the last episode went. And then obviously this section kind of took a hard right turn towards ethics and billing, which is obviously can be really um, not exciting, but it's super, super, super important. And it's something that not a lot of us are taught anything about. Um, but I'm super passionate about it, and I hope this episode is really helpful to a lot of you that feel like you're totally in the dark as far as billing and the ethics around that. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Well, let's switch gears here. Okay. All right. What's next, Jess? Ethics. Ethics. Oh, that's my, like, my love. Yay. If I, if I could somehow just absorb Paula Leslie into my very being. I know, I know, I know. I just adore her. Every time she's on and she's a, she's a dirty little scoundrel too. Cause it. she'll, one day I froze on, we were doing the podcast and I froze and she's like screenshotted me and she gave me a mustache and like devil ears and texted it to me. And I was like, you little rat. So that's awesome. she's fun too. I know. I, I adore her. At a, I'm trying to think what conference it might've been Charleston this past year, a friend of mine, we were both like, can we just get a picture with you? Like, yeah. Oh, she's, she's so like, sweet. Sure. But she was like, this is so strange. Like I'm a I know. celebrity. And I'm like, no, you are. <laughs> I know it, it is very weird. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, you're, you're amazing. You're the bee's knees. And yeah. the fact that you don't know, it makes it so much better. <laughs> yeah. So ethics. I mean, I think that that, I know in my graduate school program, it really wasn't ever explicitly taught and it wasn't even ever really explicitly touched on. And so I don't know as a new clinician that I thought about ethics and that sounds awful now that I say that out loud, but I was too busy just trying to figure out how to be a clinician, let alone learning about what's ethically right or what's not. And I think there's two areas of ethics as a clinician that we we have to think about on a day-to-day basis. And one is, you know, your ethical problem solving for your actual patient themselves, which is, again, that's like Paula Leslie's just bread and butter. Like she's the best at that. And then there's something that I like to think about a lot, which is the ethics of billing. Because I think that that is something that we as clinicians don't ever think about. And it's something that is pounded into us by people that have... (laughs) an end game to how we bill. So they're going to try to skew our perception of billing. They're going to try to get us to do things that in reality aren't right. Yeah. I still like lose sleep some nights thinking of like things that I did because I was told to do it by my boss. And then once I learned, I was like, shit, that is not okay. Yeah, You know? Oh yeah. Scary. It's 
insane when even myself, I'm the the exact same way when I think about, you know, just what I used to build, how I used to build, you know, the games that, you know, they taught us to play at a sniff in a hospital, just all over the place. And when I finally stopped and actually started to think about the, the money of everything, it kind of hit me like a freight train where I was like, oh my God, that yes, that I clicked was real life money, but it also was affecting somebody that, you know, sweet little Edna that I was treating could actually potentially be on the hook for this bill that I didn't even know about. I didn't even think about. As a clinician, learning about billing, learning about what it actually means to to bill and what the ramifications are, that's purposely almost kind of kept hidden from us. And I think that our companies do that on purpose because they don't want us to realize what exactly is going on with billing. They want us to just think of it as this sort of detached thing. I think that's why they just give you a yes, no box to click. Like you don't even know like the prices, what you're doing, you know, nothing about it. I think what's like, what helped me a ton was like, I think I'm I'm thinking it was maybe Dan Weinstein. Somebody, you know, posted it in a way that like hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, Mm -hmm. do you realize that what you're doing today, like if insurance did not cover this, let's just throw out a really easy number, a hundred bucks. So like you said, little Edna, what you're doing today costs Edna, who's been on a fixed income for so many years, and she only has this pot to pee in that she can buy groceries in, What that treatment that you're doing today is $100. And I think when I heard that, I was like, whoa, like, hmm. not not to say you know, treating in my earlier years, I just kind of went through the motions, but I don't know that I made every single minute super productive mm-hmm. and count to be, you know, using the most evidence-based tra- strategies that I possibly could so that they got their money's worth. Yeah. And I, I will agree. So for example, in a hospital, you know, we're always told, oh, it's under a DRG. It's funny money. It doesn't even matter. Well, no, it turns out once their benefits run out for that DRG or for that med A stay, they roll into med B. And then all of a sudden, every charge I went in and I was seeing that patient for eight or nine minutes and I put a bill in for, they were getting a bill for, and that might affect the amount of therapy that they were able to get at their rehab at the end of the day. And so I started to think about when I walk into a patient's room, what am I going to do earn that and truly be a worthy service for them. And I had to really let go of that productivity weight on my shoulder of, you know, my boss wants me to see a patient, you know, 1.5 patients per hour or one patient per hour. And I need to bill so many minutes per day and, you know, be 90% productive. And I had to say, you know what, I just need to be the best that I can be. And I need to do right by my patients because at the end of the day, if this patient doesn't get services later on because of something I did, I can't live with that. I right. can't live with the fact that Edna won't get therapy at her sniff because we accidentally rolled into Med B, didn't accidentally, we just did roll into Med B at the hospital. And then all of a sudden she has no money left. Yeah. Was what I was doing the right time to treat that patient? Was it the appropriate level of care to be treating that patient? And was it meaningful to them? And if I truly looked at it, maybe it wasn't. 
Or like you said, maybe it was the right time to be treating that patient. Maybe I should have been in there, but I wasn't doing the most I could for them. And I think that, you know, we forget because we're so detached from the reality of what we're doing, you know, and I get it. It's easy to be detached from it. You know, there's so many things we have to worry about. This just seems like one more thing. One more thing I have to think about. One more thing that I have to be responsible for. And at some point you feel like you're going to break, but I just feel like you can't break on this point. You got to yeah. have to start yeah. taking a stance as a field. We have to start standing up and saying, no, no, I will not bill all of these minutes because I know I might've been in that room for 60 minutes, but oh, they got on the bedpan. Oh, a doctor walked in. Oh, somebody else walked in. So realistically, I was maybe only doing treatment for about 35 minutes. And you know what? I'm not going to build that 60 minutes. And I don't care what anybody says to me. I'm just not going to do it. And if we all said it as a collective group, they'd have no choice but to listen. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally agree. I totally, totally agree. I even, I work with some buildings now that they don't even have productivity requirements mm-hmm. and they are some of the most profitable, well-run five-star highest quality, the patients get incredible outcomes because they are patient driven. You know, they are not living and dying by the dollar that nobody even knows about, you know. I just don't get why more places aren't like that because the reality is, is you're going to have such better outcomes if your therapist is actually able to clinically determine what a patient needs and not let their insurance determine what they need. And I get it. I'm, you know, speaking from like a utopia of, you know, that this can happen, but it is true. You know, did that patient that had dementia and encephalopathy and is off from their baseline truly need to be seen every single day in the hospital? Or could those benefits have been better utilized at their sniff or even in their, whatever their final destination, that sounds awful, but like their final placement will be so that you could really focus and hone in on teaching them their environment where they're going to live and teaching them how to navigate in their their you know long-term care facility or even their home. And yeah. you know, it's so funny I was watching that CEU with Corinne, the the goal writing one, and she said something that just hit home for me. So Corinne said that you know, just because you identify deficits doesn't mean that they need to be treated. That you really need to look at the deficits that you can treat to make a meaningful impact on your patient. Just because you can go in there and bill for that COG treat, is it going to do anything for that patient at the end of the day? Or did you just do it because it boosted your productivity at the end of the day? And that really hit home with me, especially working in an inpatient acute care setting like I do of you know, really starting to critically think about our patients and critically think about what we bill and how we build and the impact that it'll have. Yeah. And so thank you, Corinne, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I know. I'm sure she'll love to hear that. I remember I was supervising a CF a few years back and I, I, like you said, you know, I went in and I was looking at the goals and it was like a goal for like med management and it was not a good goal to begin with, which mm-hmm. is what brought it up. But then I'm talking with the the CF and the patient and the patient's like, I don't know why you guys are making me work on this. Like I have 24 hour care that sorts out my meds for me anyways. And I was like, okay, why the hell are we working on this? Right. Thing? Like, and then another one, there was like a voice school too. And I was like, 
okay, I was like, do we need to like get to an ENT? Like, do we know like what's going on? Like the vocal etiology here? Do we know what's going on? The patient's like, my voice has been like this for 40 years. Like, I don't give a shit that this is what I sound like. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, did, and and I think (laughs) what you said, going back to like Paula Leslie and the ethics and, and I think SLPs almost need to have an ethics course first, like ethics, critical thinking before we learn all of that other stuff, because it's like, did you even ask the patient what was important to them, what goals they wanted to work on, what's going to be meaningful for them and and form your treatment plan from that? Because if like you said, if we're sitting here billing for stuff that they don't even care about, that they don't need, that's not important, that looks horrible for everybody is a waste of everybody's time and money and resources. A hundred percent. And it's so interesting that you say about about having a clinical ethics course. I'm so right there with you. I feel like it should be a standard in every single university. It's not, but (laughs) if somebody's interested in like learning more about clinical ethics, there is a book. Funny enough, it's titled Clinical Ethics. There you go. And it is called Clinical Ethics, a practical approach to ethical decisions in clinical medicine. And there's a bunch of different editions. I believe they're on like their eighth or ninth. And I read it back in like, I don't know, the third or fourth edition or later. And it was a phenomenal book. It was really a very user-friendly, easy to digest book all about ethics. And, you know, it focuses a little bit more from a physician perspective, but I think that that is very easily transitioned into what we do because we, we are very, very close as far as like our critical decisions that we're having to make and our quality of life talks that we're having to have and our end of life talks that we're having to have. And I think that we more so than even PT and OT end up affecting somebody's global prognosis a lot of times. And so I highly recommend that book to anybody that wants just something like an easy in to thinking about clinical ethics and you know, it doesn't go over anything really as billing, but it does go over just like that critical thinking of what am I doing with my patient? Like, what do they want? Because that's something that as I'm evolving as a clinician, I'm really starting to circle back to my patient and going, what do you want? And is what you want even practical to achieve? And you have to think about that just because that patient wants to memorize everything if they're late stage dementia, you know, that might not be a practical goal, but maybe a practical goal would be, you know, rearranging their environment, you know, looking for alternative therapy methods for them and educating them and their family about what that's going to look like in the next year. And so instead of having spent 20 sessions working on rote memorization that did absolutely nothing for that patient, you could have done something really, really meaningful in three. Yeah. And I like to think that there's this big pot of money somewhere in the sky that then when you get that patient that doesn't have great insurance, that someday if we actually weed out all this billing that we're doing that isn't indicated, there could be more services for those patients that where it really is. And we could you know, advocate to the insurance company and go, look, we are only doing what is absolutely necessary at any given time. And now you know, you can trust that when I say that this patient needs 10 more visits, they can trust us and say, you know what? You're right. You only do, you know, you only seem to treat what's absolutely indicated that this is probably indicated and maybe they get services a lot more often. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how it works on the bigger spectrum, but that's just my, 
my theory of what happened. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think that's really like a universal thought. I mean, that's really kind of the premise behind what I had for like the whole collective, okay. because I think we all, you know, for, for some reason or another, and, I, and I'm not playing the blame game by any means, but we all kind of have strengths in different areas of okay. MedSLP, you know, some of us, you know, went down the dysphagia rabbit hole. Some of us went down the aphasia rabbit hole. Some are voice, some are, you know, cognitive communication, dementia. But what we're doing in the meantime is we're abandoning all these other areas. Mm-hmm. And I think, I I don't know that we would have gotten in this insane billing predicament had we been more well-rounded clinicians. Like I, like I go into some facilities and I see patients, like I see SLPs, treating patients for the same things over and over and over. And I'm like, what about this guy here with dysarthria yeah. that would be a great candidate for, you know, speak out or something like that? And they're like, well, I don't know. I don't have any experience with that. You know, so I like part of that too, like that's been my entire driver behind the collective is just getting people to be a little more well-rounded in the all of the areas that we can treat. Mm-hmm. Because then if you have the DOR that's yelling at you that you need to get, you know, however many hours of productivity today, you actually have knowledge in other areas that you can treat these patients that, you know, may actually need it. You know, you don't need to spend 90 minutes on, like you said, doing rote memory with a lady with severe dementia when you have a guy over here that would be very willing to go through the whole speak out protocol. Yeah. So isn't that such a great thought, you know, just instead of having such like specialty, you had just a nice general, well-rounded knowledge. And I agree. I mean, I'm probably just as guilty of anybody of going down yeah, a yeah, rabbit I'm, hole. I super am super. Am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um, just trying to do what I can to fix it. <laughs> you know, I'm just very lucky that I picked a job where I think each of the clinicians that works with me, we kind of each have a different specialty. And so we're able to meet the needs of a bigger caseload based on that. But you're right. When you are all alone at that rehab, you you almost do have to to decide to be more of a generalist versus a specialist yeah. if you want yeah. to work there and you know see that population. You yeah. know, and that way you don't forget that guy that has dysarthria that's over there in the corner that's not communicating and is embarrassed to communicate and ashamed of himself because he's being picked up and he's being treated and might actually get back to his baseline. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that that's a really a big thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I think that's hard. You know, I, I don't know that I expect everyone to know everything about oh, every area, no. but I, I think just opening our eyes that that is such an issue going on everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's like you just get, you know, you see the same reports, you see the mm-hmm. you know, same conditions are being treated. And it's like, is, does nobody have aphasia in this building? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. why is nobody getting any aphasia treatment here? So. I think those are, yeah. You have those hospitals or those, you know, sniffs that they only treat the dysphagia. Everything else goes to, you know, just doesn't get seen. And I think that that's an issue as well, you know, where if you have dysphagia, that's awesome. You're going to see an SLP. And then if you don't, you get nothing. Right. Right. That's so sad because we really can do a lot of cool shit in this field. So that's so true. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) In my most professional terms ever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Was that like a crazy rabbit hole, Jess? Where I think it might have been. I don't even know. Okay. Because I didn't even like give myself speaking points. Like I was just like, that's okay. Oh, we're just going to go off the cuff. That's okay. I think my biggest thing that I just, and I don't know if this came across to people, is just, I don't, I feel like there's clinicians out there that just bill because it doesn't seem real to them. Like it's funny money. And so just being aware every time you press that yes box or every time you put in that, you know, in that rehab optima box 32, 
like it means something. It means a lot to some people. And in an, in a hospital, I mean, we, we didn't realize always, but like when we started, we had a column now in our EMR where it shows their insurance, but if they don't have insurance, they were getting bills for us. So I re- we really had to, to revamp of like, it started hitting home. Like, cause we have patients that are living in horrible conditions to begin with. They're not going to have money to pay, but then we were asking them to pay how much <laughs> and yeah. charges and was what we were doing in that room really, truly meaningful. Yeah. Like, that's like kind of a, just an enlightening thought. Like yeah. I have the skill and when I do something really meaningful for a patient, I should bill, I should bill. Just like they should pay their doctor, just like they should pay for, you know, those specialties, but I better be doing something that is truly specialized that can only be provided by a speech pathologist when I bill. Yeah. Going in and I I mean, I can't remember how many times in my early career that I heard, oh, just go throw them a cracker, you know, just go go throw some ice chips at them, you know, or I have SLPs that'll be like, well, I kept them on caseload and I see them every day just because I know that nobody will give them ice chips. Well, you're billing for that. Like that isn't a skilled. You're need. charging them a hundred dollars a day to give them ice chips. Exactly. <laughs> I, trust me. If you told them yeah. that, I'm sure somebody would go give them ice chips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, or I literally had a clinician not long ago that told me, well, I kept her on caseload because she's lonely and nobody will go in and talk to her. That's your, what, what are you doing? Yeah. yeah. And I love you. And that is so sweet. And you are probably the nicest person for that being even a thought in your head, but that's called insurance fraud. And I don't think people realize when they bill inappropriately, it's insurance fraud. You know, I like to think of it that way because it's a scary term and it should wake us up. You are fraudulently billing for something that you shouldn't have. And every time you bill, you better be able to back up what you were doing in that room and why you were there and how that's going to, you know, progress that person back to the Korean thing of back to their goals, those meaningful goals that are going to change their quality of life of why should Aetna be paying me this? Why should they pay? If I am not doing something that is clinically indicated, that's unfair to them. That's unfair to everybody. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's such a good point. Like I just remember early in my career too, like I I wanted to know more just because that's the type of person I am. Mm -hmm. But you know, I just remember being told, well, that's, you know, you don't have to worry about that. Like you just worry about treating, they worry about billing, you know, yeah. but I, I always asked questions like, well, if I have to bill this many units of this, like how much is this going to cost? And I always was inquisitive about that stuff. But I, like you said, I never was given straightforward answers. Yep. And it wasn't until like I started my mobile fees company later and I had to provide to the facilities, you know, the cost that I was charging mm-hmm. them that I was like, holy crap, like this, um, they're paying me this amount of money to do this. And and that was a huge wake up call for me, like you said. And, and I do, you know, I, I don't, I don't know who's to blame. I don't know that it, it is anybody to blame. I think they just genuinely want us to do our job and leave the billing to the other billing yeah. people. But SLPs do need to know that stuff, like you said, because I think it is a huge wake up call. Like, holy shit, I'm going to do something that charges this person a hundred dollars today. Like I'd better bring a hundred dollars worth of skilled services to this patient and not just brush their teeth and give them ice chips. That's exactly it because that's something that the nurse could do. And I think it's right there in the definition of skilled care. It has to be something that nobody else could have provided. You are doing something that is unique for that patient. And 
if you start looking at your day and looking at your caseload that way, I think that alone will change what you do, who you pick up, how long you keep them. And when your director of rehab says, no, you can't discharge them yet. You say, no, I've run out of skilled things to do. And this is insurance fraud. And I cannot bill this person for this. Yeah. And I will tell you, at least when I've done it, they're quick to go, okay. (laughs) The minute you use that insurance fraud term, they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I think on a flip side too, I think it's a wake up call for us to improve our knowledge in all areas. You know, if you find yourself writing the same goals over and over for dysphagia or any topic for that matter, you know, like I I know I'll go in and I'll, you know, suggest some therapy techniques or, you know, I'll suggest CTAR or EMST or, you know, something like that to these SLPs. And they're like, what is that? I've never heard of it. You know, and it's like, this is the time to expand your knowledge. You know, like if you find that you are literally just brushing teeth and doing oral care every day, like wake up and smell the roses and put a little initiative into it and realize that we really are capable of doing a lot of cool stuff. And well, and who wants to do that job? Yeah. Yeah. It might be time to kind of take a few CEUs and right <laughs> get into 2019. Yeah. We are seriously living in the coolest time for our field. I mean, no offense to like PT, but they're, they're kind of boring. Like they have a lot of their stuff, at least to me, they're boring. <laughs> But like everything is evolving so fast in our field. Like I, yeah, yeah. I literally cannot keep up with all the research that comes out and trying to critically analyze it and trying to go through and read it because every month, so many articles have come out all over the place that really change how we practice, what we're doing for people, what we're providing from people. You know, you think about just all of these researchers that are just putting out the most amazing research. I mean like Dr. Brodsky, you have people at for head and neck cancer putting stuff out, UC San Diego. I mean, you, you, everywhere you turn around, there's just the coolest stuff. And I don't understand how you could just be brushing people's teeth because that's boring. Like it is fun to think about, read these research papers and think, okay, like how could I help, you know, how could I help little Mr. Johnson over there be so much better in two weeks and then watch them evolve. That's crazy. Yeah. Like not at many other, you know, PTNO to get to see that, but you think about in the scope of professions on the planet, not many people get to do stuff like that. And I guess for you to kind of just whittle away, just brushing people's teeth and doing stuff, like it's a waste of your skill set that you got trained for. And like you could do so much more. Yeah. Yeah. So. Again, my soapbox and yeah. I'm, I'm back. I know, I know. I have so many of those, but I, I think like I have a CF that I just adore that I just love working with. And, you know, she was one of those that came from not, not a strong grad school program and just had a lot of school background. And she really just didn't know what she was doing as far as dysphagia. And I've really kind of just taken her under my wing and like, she just loves her job now. Like mm-hmm. she loves everything about it. And I mean, she is so immersed in like EBP and critical thinking. And, and I just love talking to her now yeah. because I've loved to see, I, I love to see the progression that she's made from like scared little CF, not having a clue to like, I would literally have her treat a family member of mine now. Yeah. Like she is that good of a clinician. And she just, she's like, why would anyone not love this job? Like we get people to eat again. Like who doesn't love to eat, you know? And <laughs> and I just love her passion for it now. And, and I, I mean, I sure I, you know, kind of led her to the water, but like, she's the one that, you know, did the hard work yeah. of getting to know, you know, everything that's going on and, and getting herself up to speed. So. Yeah. 
it's definitely possible, people. That is amazing. And you, so, you tell her she is right. Who doesn't love to eat? It is the best thing ever. I know. I know. Well, and, and this is, a, I meant to bring this up earlier, but going back to, you know, Dr. Leslie and, and the ethics of things. I, I had a family yesterday that the, you know, the SLP was freaking out because the, the, the patient really, they, they did do better on the nectar thick liquid a little bit better. Not, I wasn't totally convinced, but that's here nor there, but the patient and the, I believe there was my, maybe six family members in the room and the patient, and they all just wanted the patient to have thin liquids. And the patient was, has a lot going on medically, you know, probably only has a few more months to live. And the whole family was like, just let him have the thin liquids, please. Like we are begging you. And I just said, you know, it's, it's your guy's decision. Like, I'm just here to present, you know, the, the findings of what I found and present to you what's really going on physiologically. And, it, and it's up to you to make the decision. And it's, it was a newer SLP that I really had only worked with a few times. And she's like, what do you mean they get to make this? <laughs> like, this was after we were out in the room and she was like, what do you mean they get to make the decision? And I, and I was like, it's, it's really up to the, you know, they can decide what they want to do. They can talk with the doctor and yeah. it's patient's rights. And she's like, well, you saw that he aspirated on the one sip of thin. And I was like, but it was really the one sip of thin and the rest was okay. And they're begging for thin liquids. Yeah. Like, I, I really don't think that this family is going to be mad at us if we put the man on thin liquids and he aspirates and dies. Like, no family has ever gotten super bent out of shape because you did exactly what they asked you to do. Nope. Like, and, and this, you know, it, she had never heard of this concept before, you know, and, and so I went and I talked to the doctor too. And I said, I, I was like, let's, let's go talk to the doctor. Like if, you know, I, I promise you, I've kind of been doing this a long time. I, I know that it takes a village to make these kind of decisions. I'm never going to make a decision for a family. And I'm also going to advise them to talk to the doctor too. And and so I just said to the doctor, you know, this is kind of what's going on. This is where we are. And she super sweet doctor. And she's like, well, what, what does he want to do? What does the family want to do? I said, they want to be on thin liquids. And the doctor's like, that's what we're going to do then. The, he's, you know, so medically complex that she's like, I don't know if if he's going to aspirate on thin. He's probably aspirating on his own secretions. He's, you know, there's a million things going on. And, yeah. and, you know, so the family was just elated. They were so happy that we listened to them. The daughter was bawling. You know, she's like, I can't thank you enough for just listening to us and taking what we want and, you know, what dad wants into account and I was like, yeah, I mean, that's what our job is. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're here to tell you, you know, kind of what's going on, but it's, it's up to you to make the decision. And, you know, the poor little SLP was just so like distraught because she had never, you know, seen this kind of conversation happen. But I thought it was like a beautiful teaching moment because <laughs> it was what an amazing experience for her. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. like the perfect scenario of what you want to see, you know, a family that actually is decisive. They know what they want, a physician that respects those wishes. And yeah. within one, you know, period of you being there, being able to give that patient such a better quality of life. That's amazing. Right. I right. mean, that's like, you can't, you just can't ask for a better scenario. <laughs> right. Right. And she's like, well, I don't know what to write in my notes. And I'm like, you just document yeah. everything that just transpired. You document the conversation we had. You document the family members that were there and what they said. You document what the doctor said. No one's going to go back and look at this and blame you for something no. when it was an entire team decision that came to a consensus mm -hmm. that honored the patient's wishes and quality of life. Yeah. So I, I think like that's what just drives me so nuts is like when I get called in on some of these really complicated, crazy cases 
And it's like, what does the patient and the family want? And they vary like in black and white, even have it like written out in like, you know, in a mulse, like no feeding tube, no thick and liquids. Like they have it written out. It's really, what are you going to do with that? Like, (laughs) I a hundred percent agree. And it's so funny that you say this is because there is, again, I promise Paula Leslie, if you're listening to this, I am not a stalker or maybe I slightly am, but she on demand webinar from Asha that talks about this that's coming up. Yes. I just saw that come through today. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So I was like, how perfect is this conversation? Yes. (laughs) I'm going to plug her webinar that I'm going to take. Yay. Yes. She'll love it. Talks about, you know, your assessment, your treatment and the meaning of eating and drinking and the impact of dysphagia, you know, and the ethical impact that we play in that scenario. And, you know, I mean, please go listen to Paula talk about it because I mean, I know I'm going to, but I think that we forget, like, I don't know. I feel like I wasn't trained to be like, for lack of a better term, like the PO police. I I was trained to rehab and help people get to a better quality of life. And there are risks. And sometimes if somebody wants to accept those risks, I need to be like, okay, awesome. Now, what can I do to help you be the safest and continue to get better while you are accepting those risks? Just because you chose to be on thin liquids doesn't mean you don't deserve treatment anymore. You know? yeah, yeah. And I don't have the right to tell you that you don't get those things when you want them because like, you're an adult. You can make your own decisions. Just like if I was in that bed and I wanted thin liquids, I hope to Lord, nobody tries to tell me that I can't make that decision because I can. And so can they. And I think that's what we forget sometimes in the medical field altogether. I mean, physicians, clinicians is that we may have a great wealth of knowledge, but we do not know what's best for every single patient. Right. And we have to keep that in mind of, we can offer them education, but we are just there to help them and guide them not to make final decisions. Yeah. So, you know, if nothing else, take that away. Cause yeah, that's just something that I see more often than not is clinicians that like they do become like little police officers, like little generals and they're there and they're, you know, how did you get this and give me that? And, you know, yeah, you want to keep your patient safe, but if, Dude, if they're managing to steal the food off their neighbor's tray and they are bed bound, like, you know, that is true tenacity. Right. <laughs> like, if they're drinking the toilet water, <laughs> it's actually please get them. So many yeah, times. I've seen it happen. I've seen people wheel over and yep. take their hands and cup the toilet water out. <laughs> get them some water. Yep. For the love like, of God. Yeah. You know, if they are competent and they can make that decision, let them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, I've had this conversation with a few different people, but I think where the way our field is going and just the rate that it's expanding, which is so incredible. And it's wonderful that our researchers are churning out this great work as fast as they are. But like, it's kind of not impossible for us to keep up with it, but it's difficult. Mm. But I think the grad students really need like a like like you said, this clinical ethics course, this critical thinking I think they need that on the front end, you know, as opposed to like a one credit elective that they can take their last semester to graduate. You know, it needs to be at the forefront of the foundation of our thinking. You know, if for some reason you don't get to the, you know, 97th treatment technique for aphasia in grad school, like, is that such a huge deal? No, but you've given students the foundation to 
think about these cases as real people, mm-hmm. treating them as ethically as possible and just taking, you know, looking at the whole picture. Yes, I a thousand percent agree. I would love to see at the beginning of every grad school just well, a problem solving, because I think that if you do not have good problem solving skills, unfortunately, you're probably not going to be able to be the most effective clinician because you're going to miss things. You're not going to be able to get in a salient way from point A to point Z. So, you know, I, even because we take a lot of students, like I just, I see it over and over and over again, students are coming to us and we're literally teaching problem solving skills. We're not even able to have them see patients. We're having to spend a decent amount of time just teaching them how to critically think. And yeah. I feel like, you know, you're going to have people that just don't get it. I, I do understand that, but it should really be just a massive emphasis at the beginning of everything. And then I do think ethics because our field is expanding rapidly into very critically ill medicate, like medical management And honestly, I'm making decisions that a physician is deferring to me in an ICU. I need to have just a very strong basis of ethics because if I don't have that to help guide my decisions, I'm not going to be an effective clinician there. And I think that maybe as our our field was being founded, it wasn't in those critical medical situations. And that's maybe why some of this hasn't quite caught up at the university level at every university. I think there are universities that are catching on and they're changing their programs and they're evolving and they're evolving rapidly. But I do think others, you know, could benefit from that. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. I didn't even, didn't even think of that. Yeah. And so as a clinician, if you are out and you realize like, Hey, crap, I didn't get any of that education. I will tell you personally, like spend your time, spend your money, like at the front, you know, of your career, learning those things, get those books, go, you know, have these conversations. You know, if you're lucky and you work in a hospital system, there should be an ethics board. And I will tell you, I like stalk a couple of people on our ethics board and I email them and I ask them questions and they may just be general questions or they might be about specific patients, but I like to ask them, you know, what are their thoughts? What are their feelings and what should I be thinking about? And, you know, not every hospital system has a great ethics board, but some do. And, you know, take advantage of those things. Or if you don't pick up those books, you know, pick up those critical thinking books, you know, challenge yourself to be better in those areas because your whole career is just going to go just so much better with it. Yeah. Well, I think on the flip side, you're talking about like acute care ICU, I think on the flip side of like home health, I mean, now... There's so many SLPs that are like the only, I I can't think of the fancy home health terms, but like they are the only service that is out treating these patients in these rural areas. And they're the ones doing like the nursing intakes and taking vitals and all that stuff. And they're the ones that are supposed to make these big decisions for the patients on start a care, end a care, discharge, you know, stuff that I didn't even realize SLPs even do that home health SLPs are now doing. And, and like you said, I think there's, there's a crap ton of ethics all interwoven in in that role as well. Almost as much, if not more so than in an ICU, because in an ICU, you're going to have a lot of people making decisions when you're out on your own. That, I mean, to me, that's, that's scary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of responsibility and that's amazing that clinicians are doing it. You know, I love advances in our field, but I do think that you just, you have to be, you just have to have such a strong sense of right and wrong and, you know, really keeping that patient 
solely in focus and not letting any bias creep in. Like, which is really difficult because we all bring bias into everything we do. And I don't care who you are. I don't, I don't, there is no human being that doesn't bring some level of bias into them, into the room with them. And so if you're the only one in the room, I mean, you, you had better be able to put all of that, check it at the door. Don't, don't think of them as the, they, as though they're your grandpa. Don't think of them in that form. You have to really keep what they want and what their goals are in focus and not bring anything that you would want for them into the room at that point. Yeah. Other than what you can bring to them for rehab potential. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great point, Jess. All right. Did we cover it all? I think we did. All right. You have any, any final thoughts, anything you want to drill into the people? <laughs> oh, don't even get me started. All right. <laughs> go take MDTP. Uh, yes. Go. Yes. Sorry. I'm obsessed with that course right now. Um, Good. Yes. Yes. As am I. So go, go, just go read, go learn, you know, set a goal for yourself of something super simple. Like once a month, I'm going to spend an hour researching or, you know, once, you know, once a week, I'm going to take 20 minutes and I'm going to read the SIG. And, you know, something that I try to tell people is also like, don't, I get it. We want to be reimbursed for our time we spend researching, but don't always rely on your company to do everything. You know, take that initiative, take that time for you, for your, your patients, just, just do it. You know, this, this is a field that, you know, yeah, you might only need so many CEUs per year, but really to keep up, you, you just got to be once a week, once a month, just do something. It doesn't even have to be a ton. I mean, how much time do you sit just scrolling through freaking Amazon on a given night? Oh my God. Take yeah. 10 yeah. minutes yeah. of that and just read like one or two abstracts and figure out if that's an article that you want to read. Just, yeah. you know, it's super simple. And you'd be surprised, at least I was, about how much time you waste doing random things throughout your day if you actually pay attention. Yeah. If you turn on that little screen time app oh on gosh. your phone That's and then awful. you realize how much time you spend scrolling <laughs> through Facebook and you want to throw your phone out the window. Yeah. It, the, when that thing, I don't know what evil human being created that when it first yeah. popped up on my phone, I was like, what, what is this? Why is it telling me this? Yeah. This is yeah. information I did not need to know. Yeah. I struggle. I struggle with that because I have so much of my business is on, yes. is like on there. But so I like wish that I could break it up because I really would love to know how much mindless scrolling I do yes. versus like intentional work. But <laughs> still, yeah, yeah. I'm right there with you. Let me ask you, Jess, this, this is like off, off the topic, but you took MDTP and you're an acute care clinician. Yes. How many, I, I feel like I argue constantly with people that like, I took it, there's no use for it in acute care. What? It's no, but yes, yes. So without divulging too much, tell the people that it's definitely useful in acute care. So from my acute care perspective, I think that part of the reason I took it was, you know, just the review. They go into a lot of review of like what what exercises out there, what compensatory strategies are out there and like the true effectiveness of them. And then from an acute care perspective, you can have a patient, you know, if they have a, a decent stroke, you can have them in the hospital for quite a bit of time. And let's say you're just not really getting anywhere. Why not 
use that technique. Why not yeah. go and use yeah. that theory, get them started. And then, you know, maybe you can pass off to an MDTP clinician at the next level of care, or you have that patient like we do where they have no insurance. So they're never going to, they have to be able to walk out of your hospital independent and yeah. they are in-house rehabbers. You know what? MDTP could just save your butt and get them out of there that much faster. You want to know? I mean, your CEO will probably or CFO will probably come and personally thank you because they yeah. cannot discharge that homeless man with a pig tube. And if you yeah. get the meeting, you're going to be a hero. And think yeah. of how amazing you're going to feel, even if it's only a couple of times a year, if you change the whole outlook of somebody's life. Or yeah. the other reason I took it too is like, I'll meet patients and yeah, maybe I'm not necessarily the one doing the the treatment, but maybe I identify them. And now that I know all about it, I'm able to say, you know what? you seem like you're a perfect freaking candidate for this. I'm going to go do your fees or your MBS and get all of the information that you need to know so that I can refer you to an MDTP clinician. And there's your report that you have with you so that you can go get this treatment that you deserve. Yeah. So, you know, just several different angles. Yeah. I love that you're saying that. And this is not sponsored by MDTP or anything. This is totally (laughs) off the cuff. This is me and Jess just talking, but I think that's one thing that drives me nuts because I like, and I was talking with Kelly Caldwell about this and she's like super passionate about using it in acute care. And, you know, I love her perspective about it too, is like, you get some of these patients that are there for two or three weeks. Are you Mm -hmm. just going to like sit there and let them atrophy or like do something with them? You know, like I had a guy recently that he was in the ICU for 41 days. Yep. And the wife, the friggin' wife was like, I thought that like, if he didn't swallow that, like he probably would lose those muscles. So she's like, I gave him like water and pudding like every day. She's like, I don't think I was supposed to, but like (laughs) no one was and no one was doing anything for his swallow. And I was like, oh my God, like they, they literally pegged him and like never revisited. I don't know if he fell through the cracks. I don't know what happened, but like I like said to the wife, I was like, you like you You legit rehab this dude. Like saved him. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, every day we would do ice chips. We would do a cup of water. We would do pudding. I'm like, oh my freaking God. But you're like, awesome. You're now an honorary SLP. (laughs) That's what I said. That's what I said. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, he would have been so perfect. Like, I think it's a great tool. You know, they even say in the course, it's not a panacea. It's not an end all be all treatment. But for a certain population, it is something that can be the difference between them never eating again or eating again. And I think that the mere fact that they're able to come to the table saying, listen, this isn't going to be for everybody. It's not going to be perfect. And they have that kind of humble approach of like, we just want to teach you so you can help people like that right there to me. I was like sold. Like I'm going to be so open-minded to what you have to say. And when I took it back home, I was able to really look at my caseload, look at my, you know, population that I'm working with. And just like they said, it wasn't going to be for everybody, but I've found a few people that I've been able to say, you know what, you will benefit. Let me go do this and let me send you on your way with all of the education or, you know, my next goal is to get multiple clinicians within our healthcare system. Cause there's three of us now that have it, but get a bunch of us so that we could do it you know, and so yeah, when I'm awesome. on for a couple of days, then the next person yeah. comes on and they do it so that we could actually start actively doing it for, you know, a lot of those patients that come in instead of right now, when I'm the only one on my campus saying, look, I'm not here enough. You know, I'm yeah. going to get you started. Yeah. I'm going to give you the theory. We're going to, you know, go over everything. And then I have a name. I have somebody I am sending you to and get, yeah. like, you're going to be set. 
so that we can start doing it. I just, I think it's a really great thing. Just like, you know, I don't know how many people out there have taken like LSVT loud, but like that was a big game changer for me. Like I just loved that program. You know, I think again, not for everybody, not for every patient, but the ones that it's like that it's appropriate for, it's a game changer for that. Super beneficial. Yeah. 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 So I'm so glad that you said that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I love that Jess. I know I was talking with Dr. Crary about it and I was like, Oh my God, there are so many SLPs that need this tool. And he's like, really, you think it's that useful? And I was like, yes. (laughs) That sounds, yeah. 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 I was like, from acute care to home health. He's like, really? You think everybody? I'm like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I just could think of, I mean, I see patients across so many settings and I just could think of like this patient in this setting and this patient in that setting and this patient in that setting. Like they all would have been great candidates for it. Oh, I am telling all of my clinicians, like at my SIFs and stuff like that I go to, I'm like, you, you just, you have to, there is no other option. Like you have to get into one of these courses as soon as you can, because you are going to then look back in your brain and you're going to think of so many patients that you could have done this with. And you're going to go, holy crap. Like I would have had a different, I, there's a good chance I would have had a different outcome and you you just got to do it. That's one of those ones where you got to suck up the time and money and just, just do it. And it's worth it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's worth Plus it. Plus it's fun. And I you, had a genuinely good is. time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Chris yeah. hilarious. Like, yeah. I yeah. know that he realizes how funny he is, but he is really funny. Yeah. I think he tells the same jokes every time. Probably. I, I won't, I won't let that secret out of the bag, but I've heard that he tells some of the same jokes. I love it. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, Jess. This yeah. has been, we covered like a myriad of topics, which I just love getting on rants and soapboxes. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so thank you so, so much for sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge across various settings and yeah, various topics. No problem. And it was fun. I had totally, I was a little uh, terrified, but <laughs> it was fun. I told you it's just us gals chatting. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much, Jess. You're welcome. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.